Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, war correspondent safety. News chiefs have said that they are now terrified of sending journalists to Iraq. Is war zone reporting now even more dangerous than it used to be? And how can we better prepare journalists? The Press Complaints Commission is dead, but a number of newspapers have chosen not to sign up to Ipso, its successor, choosing instead to self-regulate. Is Ipso flawed? And beyond that, can, and indeed should, newspapers self-regulate? And press barons. 80% of UK national newspapers are owned by just five families. That's why a few internet types have got together to try and crowdfund the purchase of the Times and the Sunday Times. Haven't press barons always been a necessary evil? Or does Kickstarter and the rest mean that they are now living on borrowed time? And joining us as ever is two of the media's best and brightest, Clotilde Redfern is CEO of One World Media, a non-profit organisation that supports international journalism and promotes balanced media coverage of developing countries. And Tom Whitwell, formerly head of digital at The Times and now a product development consultant. Media Focus. First up, how can we better prepare our journalists to report from war zones? Recently, a number of reporters have been tragically murdered while reporting on the conflict in Iraq including two journalists whose beheading has been claimed by the Islamic State. Some websites are claiming that if journalists are not seen to be reporting what the extremists see as the truth, they too will now be targeted for attack. Perhaps inevitably, news chiefs are confessing now that they are terrified of sending journalists there. Clotilde, how can we possibly train our journalists to get by in these very difficult environments? I think um, the, tr- the training is actually it exists and is actually quite good for staff reporters they're quite well supported by their contracts and they have various training, support and protection written into their contracts. So that will include hostile environment training, protective equipment, full insurance, their families are supported and they get full risk assessments that are carried out ahead of any sort of reporting trips that are made. They also have evacuation and hostage negotiation skills in the t- within their editorial teams. Um, so as much as possible to kind of mitigate the risk. Yes. The problem is that freelancers don't have any of that. So they're basically in the dark if they're in trouble because no one's paid for their insurance. All of these things are incredibly expensive. So as a freelancer, you're not going to be able to afford to cover yourself. Um, I don't actually think the issue is in the kind of training that they receive because if, if you've become a pawn, a political pawn, as ISIS have made these foreign journalists such as Stephen Sotloff and James Foley, you're a target and it's very difficult to protect yourself from that unless you stay within, you know, embedded within the army or you never leave the green zone or anything like that, which means you're probably not going to get the story you want to get. So it's good to be reminded that Stephen Sotloff and James Foley, though they were freelancers, were experienced and trained. They still got were captured and killed. I think the the real issue here is where does the responsibility lie for taking the risks that you have to take these days if you want to be a war reporter? I mean, I can't imagine anyone kind of falling into war, war reporting by accident. I think it's a conscious choice. The problem is that if you want, if you feel that that's your vocation in life today, there are very few of those st- protected staff reporter positions available. And if you want to make your name, you're going to go out there and freelance. And sadly... The freelancers are those that are most at risk, and paradoxically, they're also those that are going to take the most risk because they're trying to prove to get themselves. The best copy. Yeah, they're trying to prove themselves, and they're also trying to get paid, and their, you know, financially, their livelihood, sorry, depends on them coming back with the story. So they're going to take even more risks, even though they're the least covered. Tom, how did you square that circle at the Times? So I think at the Times, uh, it wasn't an area that we were working with directly, but I think. 
um, that was where you had professional journalists and you had a, a proper scheme to protect them. So um, as much as you possibly can. So when we send people out, uh, they were properly equipped. They had the sort of hostile environments training you would expect. But even then, the people who they are working with are at risk. There was there was an incident where a uh, translator from one of our journalists was killed in Iraq. Uh, these things do happen. Experienced people get kidnapped. Uh, and it is an incredibly dangerous you know, profession to go into. Uh, I think one thing that will probably be happening now is that the definition of what is a journalist is is shifting. So if you are somebody who files a little bit of copy here and there, you may consider yourself not a journalist or something else. If uh, if a group wants to claim you're an American journalist or a British journalist, they can do that and they can then you become a pawn. So I think the, the as journalism has had the potential to become less and less professional, in that you don't need to to work for a national newspaper to be a journalist, uh, an ever larger group of people are exposed to that kind of risk. Clotilde, do you think there's something then to be said that uh, newspapers have a duty not to take reports from freelancers, given that it's going to be encouraging people to put themselves at greater risk? I think that's a very good point. If I was running a news organisation, I wouldn't want anyone on my payroll, freelance or staff, going to um, a war zone unprepared or uninsured. But who is going to fund that? It comes down to the bottom line and who, how where the financial viability of that protection comes from. Um, I think the problem is the budgets are being squeezed all the more all the time with foreign reporting desks. New talent is going into the industry. I think Tom's point about the the growth of the freelance sector due to the fact that journalism, it's not a regulated profession like medicine or architecture is. And if you had those kind of professionals standards in place, that could make a big difference, but that would be a, a huge process that everybody would need to get behind. But that, that could be one way. I fear that, you know, you're only going to protect the safety of those who dare to take the risks if everyone agrees not to buy their copy. But that's not going to happen. It's just like saying people shouldn't buy goods that are made with, um, you know, sweatshop labour or the Chinese shouldn't work for such low wages. Well, if they didn't, somebody else would. And I think that's the same thing with journalism. If if there's one outlet that won't pay freelancers, someone else will, because it's a business. They're in the business of selling stories, and they will buy stories from wherever they can get them. I would imagine also that the financial motive is quite a long way down the list for a lot of these people. You know, These are people who... This is what they want to do with their life. and This mm. is what they are committed to. They want to go out, they want to find the stories. Cutting off the funding would just make it more difficult for them. Mm. Um, but I think you'd find people going and doing it. You know, people go and do extreme and dangerous things with their life. And often, you know, whether you're jumping out of an aeroplane, you're jumping off the top of a tall building, or you're going and reporting from Iraq, people take risks and they're going to carry on taking risks however you try and sort of legislate against it. I think as a as a responsible employer, the Times has to take a decision that even though they're going to mitigate the risks as best they can, they have to still put people in harm's way if you're going to have journalists there on the ground. That to me seems, um, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of risk you simply just can't mitigate. Would, would you say that's fair? I think clearly any journalist who's in that sort of position is at risk. And I think if you are an employer of that kind of journalist, you feel an enormous duty of care and you take that very seriously. But I think you... you you can't suggest that they're not, it's not going to happen sort of anyway. And particularly now, 
as I was saying, saying if you, in the past, if you wanted to be a reporter in, in the Crimean War, you had to find a newspaper in London to say you're a reporter. Now, any of us could get on a plane and get on a bus and find ourselves in one of these places because we'd set out to do it. And you could file copy and you would be a reporter. And if nobody took it, you could make a blog and you could file copy yourself. It was interesting. I was thinking about this. One of the um, the most interesting people covering the Syrian war is actually Brown Moses, who is this blogger um, in the UK who, mm. uh, from the safety of his home, uh, spends his time researching YouTube videos and knows Analyzing as much the landscape about, and so on. It's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. He knows as much about sort of weapons flows and he was the person who identified where James Foley was killed in in, um, in Iraq. Uh, so I think if it was my son, I'd rather he be that kind of foreign correspondent. Um, but I think uh, these are things are changing all the time. Clitil, do you think, though, that there's a change here in terms of the way that the Islamic State are treating journalists? Because... You know, I don't want to hark back to a kind of golden age, but even if you disagreed with a journalist copy, you wouldn't then target them for violence, would you, if they happened to write something that you didn't like? That was that seemed to be an accepted part of war reporting. Now they're being threatened directly, and that must at least subtly put them under some duress, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think um, war journalists have become political pawns and that um, ISIS is actually a very well-thought-through, organised group of people who are very intelligent and know how to use the power of the media in their favour. And so I, you, you can see in the sort of narrative about how they have single-handedly got the US government and the UK government to really take them seriously through this and have, having to really question their policies against whether to pay um, hostage demands or not. And whichever way, they have got loads of attention and they've achieved that through the very fact that they've um, captured and killed journalists. If they'd captured and killed someone else, it'd probably get less media attention because they're, they're, you know, targeting the friends and colleagues of these huge information structures, these, these media platforms that can very easily and very quickly spread the news about what's happened. And I think what's interesting is there are, have been other journalists, There's there was a a note going around on Twitter, and it hasn't been very um, verified, about a Syrian journalist having been killed and how, you know, the quote was, the world didn't give a damn. Well, it's not that the world didn't give a damn, it's just that his own media platform wasn't as powerful as the media platforms for whom um, Stephen Sotloff and James Foley were working. So they've definitely become pawns. I think, like you said, it's not possible to mitigate all risk. And how much risk people choose to take is a very personal decision. And there's there's this grey area where how much risk is um, being decided by the individual correspondent and how much risk are they encouraged to take by the makeup of the industry. And that's the grey area where I think there needs to be more thought and um, possible regulation or standards um, discussed. But ultimately you're never going to take away the risk factor that you decide yourself as a freelancer. And I think the best thing we can do is make young uh, reporters aware of the risks. Mm. I'm quite shocked at some of the young students that apply for our production funds and want to go and report. One one um, young woman wanted to report from the Gaza Strip recently and we just explained that, well, we didn't want her to go out there right now because it was just too too hot. And too crazy. Too, yeah. 
And she sort of fought us a bit on that. And we were like, well, we're not going to do that because there's no way that I want to feel that I'm in any way responsible for putting someone in harm's way. And if I'm funding her to go, I feel that I have a certain responsibility there. I'm making it possible for her to go or not. So I'm taking responsibility for that choice. But ultimately, she's also deciding. And like, mm. like, like Tom says, anybody can go out, put themselves in the middle of a you know, huge story, no matter how dangerous it is, if they choose to do so. But you need, I think, our responsibility, if we're, if, like, for One World Media in any case, we're involved in speaking and training the next generation of journalists, we want to make sure that they understand the risks and they know what they can do to protect themselves. Tom, let me, just briefly before we move on on this, do you think that journalists have always been subtly blackmailed by the sphere they're operating in? So, for example, I used to be active, quite active in politics, and if you know, if Blair's government were getting repeatedly slagged off by a certain journalist, they would just cut access to the Downing Street feed. So even though you're reporting kind of about what Downing Street are doing impartially, you've always got to not upset them too much, lest they cut you off. Do you think journalists have always been blackmailed? I think journalists always have to have a relationship with the people they're writing about. Um, or they can not have a relationship with the people they're writing about, and they do a very different type of journalism. If you, if it's important, and never the twins shall meet. Well, if it's important to your your um, your kind of reporting to have good access to the prime minister, that's something you need to you need to keep going. If you, it's quite possible to be a political reporter with no access to the prime minister. Um, there are two different ways of approaching it. Next up, press regulation. The press complaints commission is dead. Long live its successor, Ipso. And yet, before the Leveson reporters even had time to gather dust, after tons of criticism about independence, publisher control and arbitration, last week the Guardian said it would join the Independent, the FT and others in not signing up. Tom, is the Guardian right? Can newspapers regulate themselves? And have you lost the will to live? So I, I think this is, this is just a hilarious story that in, in 2014 we're having this kind of conversation. The idea that it's a big issue, this kind of regulation in the UK and the people still talking about it seems extraordinary. In the week this was happening, um, what was happening across the world was uh, the most extraordinary invasion of privacy that I think we've ever seen when some hackers decided they wanted to see pictures of nude celebrities so they'd hack into their phones and look at their pictures and then publish them around the world. That's what's happening. That's the world we're living in. And the idea that a kind of spat between The Guardian and um, Richard Murdoch and the Mail is somehow significant in the future of how reporting happens just seems ludicrous. Clotilde, given uh, that t Twitter is a kind of Wild West here, is this just an anachronism here? Are we just wasting our time even talking about it? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think for me, the most important thing for me is that I can trust what I read in the papers. And sadly, I don't feel that I can. And I wonder if some kind of regulation can change that in the future. Obviously, Ipso doesn't seem to be doing um, half of what the Leveson Inquiry request, requested of a new um, regulatory body. The fact that whether the Guardian can regulate themselves or not, I actually think they put forward quite a good case for how they do it on their own paper. But they also regularly make mistakes. And I often wonder... If they have such a good case of a good um, mode of correcting mistakes, why don't they have a better mode of not making the mistakes in the first place? And it's sometimes it's quite surprising quite how many corrections have to go in, and you sort of think, well, there's a bit of a chicken or egg problem here. It is. I mean, Tom, what do you think in terms of? I mean, this issue is dragging on and on. But what do you think will actually happen? What should happen next? 
I think it's the issue is you've got any publisher has three audiences. So they've got um, their readers, they've got their advertisers, and some of them have an owner, which is a significant part of, of that mix. What the government is seeking to do uh, and what The Guardian seems desperately keen to encourage is to add a kind of fourth party into that. And that, to me, seems just irrelevant. If you're a publisher and you lose the support of your readers, you're going to have a very hard time continuing. If you're a publisher and you lose the support of your advertisers, you're going to have a hard time continuing. When we look back to when the News of the World closed, uh, there was an enormous amount of media noise happening at the time. But one of the things that was happening was the advertisers were starting to pull out. And when that happens in a serious, concerted way, that's when you have a really serious problem with a, with a publication of any kind. Um, the other thing, of course, is that any publication is subject to the rule of law. So if you're breaking the law, trying to do something, then no amount of owners and readers and uh, advertisers can help that. But I think the idea that you need to give a government some kind of role to police this just seems absolute nonsense to me. I don't understand why it would be necessary. I think if a if a publication did things that their audience thought was disgusting and shouldn't be done, they're not going to be around. If they do something that their advertisers think isn't going to be is is beyond the pale, they're not going to survive. If they do things that are illegal, then they're illegal. They're not going to survive. Um, you can talk about um, publications where. They have a particularly rich uh, owner who can somehow keep the thing going. I don't know if you remember Punch magazine mm. when um, uh, Al Fayed owned it. Mm. We're able to go for about two years publishing stuff that Al Fayed wanted to see. Mm. But nobody read it, nobody advertised in it. Uh, and so it was a pretty sort of pointless exercise for him. So I think magazines and newspapers and broadcasters are incredibly tightly regulated by their audiences, those three types of audience. The idea that we should let politicians and the government come in and say, oh, we want to tell you what to do, seems like a complete waste of time. I mean, what piqued my interest was Tom's comment about how publishers are regulated by their readers. And their advertisers. I think, and their... Yeah, but I, I, you see, I, I wonder how long that's going to be true for, because I, I'm noticing that publications don't have a, a loyal readership that follows them anymore. People follow stories. I actually get most of my news from Facebook because that's where individual stories come through to me from different, different sort of editors or bloggers or people that I know are interested in things and issues and areas of interest that um, appeal to me. You get your news from various sources and I actually think there's going to be less regulation from the readers or the advertisers. That's going to be fragmented. And therefore, if you're going to be a publisher, you need to, I think you need to be regulated, but only in as far as any other business is regulated to act lawfully. And so, like Tom says, maybe you don't need a whole extra um, regulatory body. You just need better monitoring of illegal activity. But then having said that, I actually think journal investigative journalists should be allowed some illegal activity in some cases where they are going to uncover really important stories that have our national security or personal security, you know. And so for me, I sort of compare it to whistleblowers. They, you know, whistleblowers often kind of break their rules of employment or some legal rules, but they're protected. And I think journalists should get similar kind of protections. But why why publishers of news should be um, regulated more than other publishers? I mean, I actually think all 
publishers should be held to similar standards, but we're falling behind because these, there's new ways of publishing and new ways of communicating that pop up all the time. And what I think is really um, fascinating is that the crowd, the audience, seems to regulate itself, this whole wisdom of the crowd thing. I've seen that happening a few times. I mean, the really funny example was that, I don't know if you guys saw the... Um, doctored image of Nigel Farage as a punk in the 80s. No, I didn't, but I imagine it was hilarious. It, it was hilarious and it really looked like him and it was zoom, zipping around Facebook like wildfire and within a day somebody had corrected the fact that this wasn't a true image as much as we wanted it to be a true image because it discredited him completely. It was a, a falsified image and it, the word had come, because it had gone viral so widely and so quickly, the correction had come quite quickly as well. And so I actually think some, not maybe not all regu- regulation, but there is quite a lot of regulation from the crowd. When somebody gets something wrong or when someone is saying something incorrect on these large platforms, they do often get corrected. I mean, in future, I think the reason people are going to trust traditional publishers or maybe not particularly traditional publishers they they will follow and trust publishers that have earned their trust and kept that by being truthful and probably by regulating themselves well enough so that they retain that trust from their readers but tom the the money seems to have gone out of traditional publishing i mean if you read the hold the front page that so many publishers are making so many people redundant all the time that you wonder whether they can even afford a a decent regulatory infrastructure as it were is is this is this do you think why everyone's getting fatigued really because we've kind of reached we've all just kind of shouted ourselves into a coma i mean if you look at if you look at industries that need regulation they're industries where the customer doesn't have any power so if you've got if the government decides to sell off the gas to uh, a bunch of you know, French companies or whoever owns the gas now. It's uh, a bunch of French companies, actually. <laughs> it is. I thought so. Uh, then um, they essentially have a monopoly of supply. And if I am unhappy because they want to charge me a million pounds a year for my gas, essentially there's nothing I can do about it. So the government says, we are going to step in and we're going to act for the customer. Because Unlikely, by except the theory. That's, that's the theory. <laughs> You could switch um, to good energy. They're pretty good. But yeah. with a, with a, with the publishers, if any of the customers that are talked about, whether advertisers or readers, don't like it, they go bust very quickly. There's no, there's no way you can somehow magically support yourself with no audience and no advertisers. Uh, so they are regulated very properly, just as a corner shop is regulated. If nobody even buys anything, the shop isn't in business anymore. You don't need a government regulator to come in and tell a shop what to sell. Well, I think that brings into sharp focus our third topic, really, which is that the press barons control too much of the media, really, because I, I, I'm mindful of the Evening Standard, for example. It's a great paper. It's gone free, but but for the Lebedevs putting in their squillions, uh, it would have clearly have uh, have got into serious financial trouble. Do you think that that's something that um, that we should be worried about? Do you think it's something that, um, you know, it's always been ever thus, as it were, and we just have to deal with it? Or do you think that uh, a lot of these things like Kickstarter, where there's this group called um, Let's Own the News, are trying to buy the Times and the Sunday Times, and they've they've raised 370k so far. Obviously, it's clearly not enough to to buy the paper, but uh, you know, it just shows this. This that uh, do you think that we should be reducing our our reliance on these people? So I think they're less and less and less powerful. The Let's Own the News campaign, which is obviously a very amusing campaign that uh, Laurie Fitzjohn Styles, <laughs> who's an old city boy, has decided that he wants to own the Times. 
No, uh, we'd all co-own the Times, darling. I well, mean, that's, it's all it's some kind of cooperative. <laughs> he set up a, a, a crowdfunding. I don't know if you've ever crowd something, crowdfunded something on Kickstarter. You give them the money. Uh, if they're successful, they take the money, it goes into the bank, and then they get it paid back. Mm. Uh, with his one, you tick a box that says, I don't like Rupert Murdoch, and 370,000 people have done that. Yeah. No money changes hands. But what I thought was interesting with that was if, you, if he did actually have £370,000, you could, and he was serious about journalism and serious have a kind of plurality of voices, you can do quite serious damage with £370,000. You can hire probably two or three journalists, you can hire a couple of researchers to work with them, you can find a little room for them to sit in, and you can publish what they put for free on the internet. Uh, you can really tell stories and do the kind of quality journalism that people do. So you probably couldn't afford Andrew Norfolk, whose work at The Times uh, exposing Rotherham has been in the news so much recently. Brilliant writing. But you could certainly do serious journalism. It's clear that, that uh, Laurie isn't interested in doing that. He's interested in, you know, he's, he's got some good, good press for his, his website. But without, without, the, um, without the press, who could afford the David Aronoviches of this world or the Anne Trenemans or people like that? I mean, they're, they're not going to write for a blog, are they, for 80 quid a time? Well, they wouldn't be writing for a blog for 80 quid a time, but I think what will happen and what's gradually beginning to happen is people are able to sort of monetize themselves. So, again, this is a, it's kind of simple maths. If you are able to create half a million pounds worth of value for a newspaper, it's not unreasonable that a newspaper might pay you £100,000 or £200,000. Um, if you're not creating that value, then you're being overpaid by the newspaper there. So clearly newspapers like The Times will imagine that those people are bringing an audience to them that is valuable. What I think will happen increasingly in the future, and is just really beginning to start, is a journalist or a writer or a TV producer, whoever, will be able to say, I don't need this infrastructure. I can do this myself. So you saw this with Andrew Sullivan in the US who said, OK, I'm going to go independent. I'm going to essentially build a paywall around myself. Uh, he was able to get, I think it was about five or $600,000 very quickly. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well that's lasted over time. Um, but I think it's a, if, if, if you're writing something that people are willing to pay for, that's one way of doing it. The other thing is if you're writing something that people want to read uh, and you can sell advertising around that is another way to, to do it. There are also other ways you can, you can kind of influence the way news is done. So there's an American organization called Upworthy that mm -hmm. you'll know if you've been on Facebook in the last year or so, which is a tiny, tiny organization, doesn't do any original reporting, but what they do is find stories, usually YouTube videos, and they write very, very, very sticky, clickable headlines for them. And they are essentially a sort of organization with a social conscience. They decided they wanted to get these stories out with a very, very small cost base, they went from naught to, I think, uh, something like 800 million unique users in a very, very short period of time. So they no, sort of 80 million unique users. Mm -hmm. So they were able to get start approaching this sort of audience you'd see the Daily Mail or The Guardian having with a handful of people writing a few headlines in about nine months. So if you want to have an impact, you can have an impact very, very cheaply. Uh, which is why looking at the sort of 370,000 by the Times, if you were serious about journalism and wanted to have an impact, you can have impact with that kind of money. You probably don't need to find the 100 million he's asking for to buy the newspapers to do it.
Clotilde, I've got the Rothermays, the Lebedevs, the Murdochs, the Barclay Brothers and Richard Desmond. They're the five that come to mind. Shouldn't we be grateful of these uh, billionaire overlords that come to the rescue of these newspapers? Because without them, we wouldn't be able to afford quality journalism. Isn't it just inherently loss-making? And we should we should welcome these people as they come to buy up our media. The thing that made me stop, though, is when you said that they're affording us quality journalism. I'm not sure how much of uh, that their products I would uh, define in that way. Um, well, we'll let go I... of the Express then, OK? Then. <laughs> <laughs> but I really wonder, in 10, 15 years' time, are we still going to be reading paper news- newspapers in the way that they are today? I doubt it. I mean, personally... The only time I actually buy a physical newspaper is when I'm getting on a plane. Do you subscribe to any of the newspapers online? Because I read the Telegraph and the Times on my iPad every morning. Um, Yes, and And so I'm sure... Oh, absolutely. No, I do. And I'm sure that they they will continue as news businesses. I think we mustn't lose track of the fact that they are businesses. Mm. So... If saying, you know, our newspaper industry is too tightly controlled by these press barons, it's like you could point at any industry and look at the fact that most industries are dominated by huge corporations that have bought out each other. and that they're, So we have but monopoly rules special? in place. Isn't news special? No, I think news is a business and people need to be, you know, we need to sort of put a bit of media literacy um, training out there so people understand how the media is run because this kind of romantic idea that news is purely out there to inform us of the truth is I just think completely wrong and if you want to really lean on um, a system that informs us um, exists as a tool to support our democracy then you have to be looking at different funding models you can't be looking at a business model so you know I would point to ProPublica in um, New York that funds investigative journalism through um, philanthropist funding or Al Jazeera a, no, a completely different alternative funded by the Emir of Qatar again a completely different, different way yeah it's just different models and what I I mean I think Tom's most interesting point is that is this crowdsourcing theory that actually with the money that the um, buy on news is it buy on news campaign is raising, you could actually do a lot of alternative funded journalism. You, why buy an old system that's already proven it's broken, that every, all the bigwigs and these you know, press barons included are staying up at night trying to figure how to monetize? Mm. Focus on what the future's going to hold. It's not going to look like this in 10 or 15 years' time. And we won't mind because there'll be alternatives. The other obvious argument is if you're looking for a massively dominating monopoly player in the provision of news in the UK, you only have the BBC to look at. Mm. But then, we, you know, wouldn't it be great if buying your licence fee gave you more of a say in how the BBC was run? That's, you know, that's kind of the system, isn't it? We all pay. We all pay for a little, to have that service, but we don't get that the kind of say. that well, you, have, you have to pay to have that service. The BBC is sent to prison. But because of the unique way the BBC is funded, it is quite good at beating itself up. I've never seen a piece in The Times that says Rupert Murdoch is a horrible person. Whereas you could quite easily open the BBC News website and, and, and read a damning critique of their own Director General. So I, I agree with you, there's different funding things there. Tommy, if I could just ask you the, a final quick question then, because you were literally in that role as Head of Digital at The Times. You know, you've got a strong brand, a trusted brand, The Times. It goes behind a paywall. How do you deal with those challenges? Because my, my first thought when, when you went behind a paywall was I'd never read The Times again, but I missed it within a few months, ended up paying. And, of course, now because I'm paying for it, I read all of it. Whereas The Guardian, I, I'll check into that as and when. It's free, but I, I perceive it to be free. I'm, there's no money's worth to get. Do you think, even though I, I was on record saying it was a daft thing to do at the time, I, I think I was wrong. So that's exactly the experience, I think, that we had. It was... Um 
there was a, there was a quote when I was speaking at a, a conference saying it was a terrifying experience doing it, but it was absolutely something where we were able to take the readers along. So when I left last year, the Times had I think one hundred and sixty thousand um, paying digital only subscribers. And those people were paying, or they were sort of moving towards paying six pounds a week each, and that is a very, very significant amount of money. That's a significant contribution to mm -hmm. the editorial costs of the Times and the Sunday Times. Uh, and when you compare that to the most successful um, free online newspaper in the world, which is the Daily Mail, uh, they've gone absolutely all out to get the biggest possible audience. They have an audience of about one hundred and eighty million. Uniques a month, and all the indications are that that earns them about fifty million pounds a year, and it costs them about fifty million pounds a year to do. So they make they do make a profit, but they don't make a large profit. It's a tiny one, but they're they're trying to they're on a land grab, aren't they? They're doing the kind of LinkedIn model and the Twitter. They're getting the the critical base of people and followers so that they can then monetize it in kind of stage two, or am I wrong? Well, I think that's it. They, it it's the do thing, uh, stage three profit, stage two question mark. You know, what happens in the middle between... It's it's hard to see for a publication from a country of 60 million people claiming to have an audience of 180 million people how much bigger they think it's going to get and at what point it suddenly is going to become viable for them. Uh, and particularly when you look at their competition. So we were looking, talking earlier about Upworthy, Upworthy went from naught to, I think, 80 million uh, uniques with just a handful of staff in nine months. If you're an advertiser, you can either put your ads on the Daily Mail or you can put your ads on Upworthy. They cost the same for the ads, uh, but the Daily Mail have this enormous cost to maintain to keep producing that, whereas organisations like Upworthy have very little. And the real, best. the real competition is people like Twitter and Facebook who have, again very, very limited costs in terms of producing the content and even keeping the system going, but vast, vast audiences they can sell very cheaply. Well, I think we've run out of metaphorical tip there, so I'll give a very final quick thought to you, Clotilde. Yeah, I, th I think the business strategy of... If you have a business strategy that solely depends on being the biggest player in the market with the biggest audience, you're leaving yourself open to huge risks because, um, like Tom pointed out, they're there will be more Upworthies and there'll be new competitors all the time who have found a newer way to find the audience. And the problem now is that audiences can switch so easily from one to another. You're never safe. You need to, I think the content, quality content is where you've got to go. Not the audience of this podcast will be around forever, and I give our readers, our readers, our listeners, a guarantee of that. Um, Tom, how do we follow you on Twitter? How do people get in touch, etc.? What What's your I'm website address? At, at Tom Whitwell. And do you have a website at all for your new uh, You could look at tomwhitwell.tumblr.com. Excellent. Clotilde? I'm at Clotilde R. And uh, website's oneworldmedia.com, isn't it? It's .org.uk. All ah, right, there you are, you see. Excellent. And you can follow me on Twitter at Paul W.R. Blanchard. Don't forget to visit our website, mediafocus.org.uk, where you can leave your email address and then receive a shiny email once a fortnight to let you know that the latest podcast's out and then you can then tune in. So my thanks to my guests Tom and Clotilde. The associate producer was Jordan Greenaway. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big Things! <laughs>